Revelation chapter 11, we're going to be in verses 15 through 19. And like I said before we started the recording, uh, we're going to be covering a lot of passages tonight. So you're going to need a pen and a paper to just kind of keep up and mark down some of these things. Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth." Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now, <clears throat> with the seventh trumpet now comes what we know as from the scripture, the third woe. Now you say, wait a minute, what do you mean by the third woe? Well, go back with me to Revelation chapter 8 and look at verse 13. In the seven trumpets being blown, or the description of the seven trumpets being blown, we see in verse 13... It says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the, at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So we've already seen the first four trumpets blown. Then the fifth trumpet blew, was blown and the sixth trumpet was blown. Now the seventh trumpet is the third woe. And as you're going to see, we'll go to Revelation chapter 10. Look at verse 7. I'm sorry, chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. It says, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but, in that, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. As we're going to see, the seventh trumpet will consist of seven bowls of God's wrath, or seven plagues, as some of the scriptures describe it and which are going to be poured out on the earth. Where we've already seen the mighty angel has said that there would be no more delay in God finishing his purposes when this trumpet was blown. But when this trumpet is blown, there's going to, there were loud voices in heaven stating that the blowing of this trumpet, with the blowing of this trumpet, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. Go back to chapter 11. I really want you to see this. Look again at verse 15 of Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That's the Hallelujah Chorus. That's where the Hallelujah Chorus comes from, is this passage of Scripture. Last night, is uh, we were about to eat dinner before the Tuesday night study. Uh, because I had been preparing and knowing that we were going to be doing this, I actually went and found on YouTube a, a large choir singing the Hallelujah Chorus and just played it before dinner last night. And I couldn't help but just get teary and just, man, I just can't wait. Folks, I want you to understand what's going to happen here. We just saw in chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, that it says, In the days of the seventh trumpet being blown. God's going to fulfill what he said to the prophets. And we now see that when the seventh trumpet is blown, loud voices in heaven start saying, Now the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In this blowing of the seventh trumpet, there's going to be seven bowls of God's wrath poured out. And I'm going to show you in Scripture tonight that they're going to happen not only 
in order, but rapidly together and sometimes all at once. And I'm going to explain how that all comes together in a little bit. But when the seventh trumpet is blown, it is what God does at the end of the tribulation to set the stage where you're going to see for the battle of Armageddon and Jesus coming back and setting up his kingdom on this earth. And that's what we're going to spend some time tonight dealing with a little bit. Because one of the problems in Christendom today is most of mainline Christianity don't believe in a literal millennial kingdom on the earth. They really don't believe that Jesus is going to literally come back to this earth and rule and reign. They believe in what some people term the amillennial view of the end times. And I'm going to show you tonight, even just a little bit, because we're going to get into it in much more detail when we get to chapter 19 with Jesus coming back to the earth and setting up his kingdom. And we're going to deal with passages that describe the millennial kingdom. And you see it in such detail, you realize it can't be symbolic. But what I want you to understand is, is tonight we're going to take a look at the purpose of the seventh trumpet is to set the stage, to bring the final part of God's wrath on the earth. Well, let's read it again. Look at again. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their, th- four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now, did anybody notice something about the description of Jesus there in verse 17 that was a little bit different? Look at verse 17. Who is and who was? What's missing? Who is to come? All the way through, he's described as who was and is and is to come. But here, they're not saying who was and is and is to come. They say who was and is. James, you got a little light in your face there. Why do you think that is? Well, no, actually, the King James version actually says. The King James does. Here's why. That's what I wanted to ask. It was added. I've got to do, and I think now's a good time to do this. In the King James, it'll say and is to come. Let me do this as fast as I can because there's so much I want us to get to tonight. But we really need to do that because some of you probably have run into some of these things over the years. And that's why a lot of times you'll hear people that are King James only say, well, those other translations leave things out. You ever heard that? Well, here's why. There are two main groups of manuscripts. When I talk about the manuscripts, these are the hand copies of the original text that Paul and Peter and you know, Ezekiel and others wrote. We don't have the original pieces of paper that they wrote on, but they were hand copied. And we have more manuscripts, handwritten copies of the Bible than any other book in the history of the world by far. Exponentially, we have more evidence that the Bible was really true and written. And there's enough copies to prove that what it says is real. But if you take all the manuscripts, you're going to find that they actually break down into two groups. One group is the same and another group is the same. But both groups are not exactly the same. There's subtle differences between the two groups, okay? Are you with me so far? Let's say the cross right here represents the original pieces that were written by the people that wrote the Bible. There's a group that's closer in date that we have to the originals that don't have and who is to come. That's not there. There's another group that's all the same. It has those verses that the closer to the originals don't have. So chances are real good that because they were passed on and oral tradition, 
Some things were added. Let me give you a quick example of what I'm talking about. Put a bookmark here in Revelation. Go with me to John chapter 5. Now, somebody that doesn't have a King James Version, read to me out loud verse 4. Somebody willing to do it? Someone give me a show of hand. I'll do it. You're willing to read it, aren't you? Because there isn't one. You see what I'm saying? Yours is New King James. NAS, okay. They translated from this pile. Do you see what I'm saying? If your Bible doesn't have verse 4, it'll say 1, 2, 3, 5, right? And you'll have probably a little note at the bottom that says the earliest manuscripts don't have verse 4, but they'll tell you what it was. In that story, it's the story about the man who was wanting to get in the water when an angel would stir it. Well, we know that from the King James because actually the earlier manuscripts don't have that verse about the stirring of the water. Most likely, it's accurate and right and true, but that was added. You see what I'm saying? But the earlier manuscripts don't have it. I could show you a whole bunch of places like that, like the whole story of the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 7, verse 53 through 811 is not in the earliest manuscripts. Now, in your Bibles that leave off verse 4, they will actually have that big section because they don't want to leave a chunk of the Bible out, but they'll have a line above it and a line below it saying the earliest manuscripts don't have this section. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 is another example of that. So the earlier manuscripts, the ones closer to the original, probably are more likely going to be accurate. You see what I'm saying? Because they're closer to when they were written. The stuff that we have in the King James and New King James and NAS that translated from this pile, those verses, I don't think they change anything. They don't change any meaning. I think they're fine. But they're not in the original or the closer to the original text. Do you understand what I'm saying? And that's why for years, because of ignorance, the King James only people have always said, well, they leave stuff out. No, they didn't. The manuscripts that they copied from, which were closer to the originals, never had that. Chances are what's in this pile were added. For clarity, I found this out years ago because of how God's wired my brain. When I studied Hebrew and Greek, let me just tell you, that takes a lot of work to learn Hebrew and Greek and learn how to translate. And I'm not, I'm lazy. I'll be honest with you. I've been blessed with a great memory. And so when, instead of uh, learning how to translate Greek and Hebrew, I would just memorize sections of the Bible. The professor would say, your test that you have to translate from is going to be on Matthew chapter 20 through Matthew chapter 27. Somewhere in there, you're going to have to, on your final, give a translate from that section. So I would go home and memorize Matthew 20 through 27, literally, word for word. Back then, I had the King James Bible, and I had memorized it all. And then I get to my test. I can't read Greek, but I know some of the words. You know what I'm saying? So I'd sit there and look at the Greek manuscript and I'd say, I know what that word is. And I'd write it in pencil above it. And I know what that word is. And then I would figure out what section, what chapter I'm in. And then I would sit there and go, oh, I know where I am. And from there, I would write all the other words in. And that's when I started to go, wait a minute, I got words that aren't here. Because a lot of times you see Jesus, it would say, as Jesus walked along the seashore. Along the seashore wasn't in the text. It didn't change the meaning. It was probably accurate because he was walking along the seashore, but the original text or the 
pile closer to the original text didn't have along the seashore, it was probably added. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when you run into some of these discrepancies, all you have to do is find out, go to the front of your Bible and find out which group did they copy from, did they translate from. Go ahead, Chris. Yes, and they thought that this was, because this pile was bigger, it was better. Right, but because of the fact that they're closer in date to the original, chances are real good these are more accurate. Do you see what I'm saying? It's kind of like the telephone game, you understand? So, ESV, which we're using here, translates from this pile. And this pile, interestingly, doesn't have and is to come. Any idea why? Well, because at this, it's no longer an is to come. It's going to be a now thing. It's going to happen that fast. They're not saying and is to come because at this point, it's showtime. It's the end of the tribulation. God is bringing the final judgments. There's no more delay. And Jesus is coming back then. Do you see it? It's kind of cool. Something you'd miss if you went from this pile. All right, let's get back to Revelation. I hope that didn't derail us too much. Like I said, I don't mind chasing rabbits as long as you can catch them, and when you catch them, they taste good. Go to Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7, look at verses 13 and 14. I'm going to show you just a taste of the fact that the Scripture has been saying all along that there was a coming time when Jesus was going to rule and reign on the earth. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel was given a vision, and it says in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Do you see it? So he was seen that there's this one, like a son of man, who was presented before God, and the kingdom was given to him at that time. And it's going to be an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away. But actually, this isn't the first time Daniel saw this. Go with me back to Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, let me set the stage for you. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon at that time, has been, he had a dream. And he doesn't understand what it means. So he calls all his dream interpreters, and he says, guys... I had a dream and I want you to interpret it for me. They said, go ahead, tell us what it is and we'll tell you what the interpretation is. He said, no, because I, how am I going to know if you give me an accurate interpretation, you might be making something up. So the only way I'll know that you're giving me an actual accurate interpretation is if I don't tell you the dream, you tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what the interpretation is. You tell me what I dreamed and then I'll believe that your interpretation is correct. A pretty foolproof way to find out whether or not someone's making something up. That's partially why I struggle a little bit with some of the people nowadays that have a misunderstanding of tongues and they say, well, I got the interpretation. How do we know? You know what I'm saying? So the, the Nebuchadnezzar says, you tell me the dream, then tell me what, in, what the interpretation is and I'll believe you. Well, they all go, nobody can do that. And he said, well, then I'm going to have everybody that's a dream interpreter put to death. Word gets to Daniel. And Daniel says to his friends, pray for me. And he starts seeking God. And God gives him what the dream was and the interpretation. Look at verse 31. Now Daniel's speaking to the king. He says, you saw, O king, 
And behold, a great image, <clears throat> this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold and all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and in whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these." And as you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so that the kingdom, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay." And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure." By the way, Nebuchadnezzar realized not only was this the right interpretation, dude, you saw the, you, you, you got the dream. But the dream was a picture not only for Nebuchadnezzar, but for all of us. He saw this, Nebuchadnezzar saw this image of gold. Ironically, the head was gold, the body was silver, and then bronze and iron, and then the feet of iron and clay. Interestingly enough, the head represented Babylon. Remember, that's what the interpretation was. You're the head of gold. What happens in chapter 3? Does anybody know what happens in chapter 3? After he's been given this vision of this image that's idol, that's head of gold, and then silver, and then bronze, and then clay. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? He builds the same image, but it's all gold. In other words, even though he knew that's what the interpretation was, he's so brazen, he says, there'll be no other kingdoms. It's all me. Of course, as you know the story and you keep reading in Daniel, God has to humble him and make him eat like an animal for seven years and that kind of stuff. But whatever. We know that the interpretation of the dream was is that at that time, God had given Babylon control over the whole globe. And that was the kingdom of the world at that time. But after him was going to come a lesser and inferior kingdom, which we know is from the Bible is the Medo-Persians. But after the Medo-Persians, who came? The Greeks. And after the Greeks came who? The Romans. And then what we saw earlier when we looked at Daniel 9, 20 through 27, this one of the prince of the people who will come is going to make a peace treaty, if you will, for seven years. And halfway through it, break the peace treaty by stepping into the temple. So we know that that last kingdom before Jesus' kingdom is going to be a kingdom on the earth that's made up of, well, we saw it, ten toes. Does that sound familiar? 
We've been studying Revelation and how it had ten horns and, and seven heads and ten horns. And, and, and they're going to all, these ten kingdoms on the earth at some time in the near future are going to agree to come together. For whatever reason, whatever happens on the globe, something's going to happen that's going to make ten kingdoms of the world come together and agree for a one world government. From one of those kingdoms, though, the Antichrist is going to come up and remove three. As we see here, they are together, but they're not really together. They're, they're in marriage, but they don't, it's going to be a weak kingdom. But who comes and destroys that kingdom? The rock not cut out by human hands. So let me ask you a question, folks. The kingdom of Babylon, the head of gold, was it a symbolic kingdom or a literal kingdom on this earth? Literal. Literal. The kingdom of Medo-Persia, the body of silver, was it a symbolic thing or a literal kingdom on the earth? Literal. The Greeks? Literal. Romans? Literal. This one to come? Literal. So when Jesus now comes and sets up his kingdom, it's going to be literal, folks. It's literal on the earth. And at the seventh trumpet... The voices in heaven say, now the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the Bible says that during that time period, the millennial kingdom, Satan will be bound and in the pit. But the, right now he's not bound. He's, not he's still deceiving the nations, as the Bible says. He won't be allowed to deceive the nations. Right now, as, as the Bible says that Satan is the ruler of this world, is he not? He's the prince of the power of the air. But at that point, at the end of the tribulation, when that seventh trumpet is blown... Jesus begins to reign, and you're going to see it as we keep reading. Go to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also these who had conquered the beast, it beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed." After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of the witness of, in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished." So here we see now that the seventh trumpet consists of seven bowls of God's wrath or seven plagues. John also saw the believers who had been killed because they wouldn't take the mark of the beast or the number of his name and will worship its image, all standing around the sea of glass. And they had harps in their hands and they sang the song of Moses and the, of the Lamb. And we're going to take some time tonight, tonight to look at what that is. But this is probably where people get this false picture of heaven is just people in, you know, floating on clouds playing harps. That's the danger, folks, of building your theology on a verse. You've got to let the whole of Scripture be what bases what we believe. And, but at the same time, we see the people that are killed during the tribulation period singing to God. And this is important. It'll help us in the context to understand what's going on. At this time, these are the people who have the, who, who has the harps? Those who didn't take the mark are the ones who have the harps. And they were killed, as we know, near the end of the second half of the tribulation period, at least from the midpoint on. 
And they are now praising God. Well, the Bible says they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, when John writes to us and says they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, is he acting like we should know what the song of Moses is and the song of the Lamb is? Or is he acting like we shouldn't know? We should. I mean, he writes as if you know what the song of Moses is or the song of the Lamb is. If you ask most people, what's the song of Moses, what's the song of the Lamb? They'd go, don't know. Well, that's my job. My job is to teach you and to show you what the Scripture says. So don't be, feel bad. But after tonight, if you say you don't know, then I feel bad. All right? Go to Exodus chapter 15. I'm going to show you, listen closely, a song of Moses, but I don't think this is the song of Moses that it's referring to. I believe the Exodus 15 song of Moses gives a picture of what they're about to sing, but I don't believe it's the actual song of Moses. I'm going to show you from the scripture what I think it is. And when I show it to you, I can't wait for you to see it because it's one of the coolest passages of scripture anywhere. In Exodus 15, though, the nation of Israel had been brought right by the Red Sea, and they were trapped, and Pharaoh and his army coming after them. And as you know, God does the miracle of parting the Red Sea. They run across on dry ground. The Pharaoh's army comes in, and he drowns them. Okay, you know the story, hopefully, right? All right, Exodus 15, look at verses 1 through 21. And you see your heading, sometimes it'll say, Song of Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed great gloriously. The horse and the rider, his, his rider, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in your own on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now this is a great, awesome song. And we see here in our Bibles it's a song of Moses, but it's actually, this is sung after God had delivered Israelites out of the brutal control of Pharaoh in Egypt. But I don't believe this is the song that they're going to sing at that time. Because if you study your Bibles, you'll find there's another song of Moses 
that I think without question will be the one they sing, and that's in Exodus, sorry, Deuteronomy 32. Is this Song of Moses here a picture of the, the song that's going to be sung? Sure. It sings of the deliverance of God from the, uh, and sparing his believers and destroying his enemies, but it's not the one that's going to be sung at the end of the tribulation period. Go to Deuteronomy 32, and we're going to look at the whole chapter. Now, I want you to back up with me to chapter 31 and look at verse 19. God says, now therefore, 31 verse 19, now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them. Does God know his kids or what? And despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know that they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them. I know what they are inclined to do even today before I brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. When Moses had finished writing the words of, the, of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way I, which I have commanded you. And in the days to come evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Look at verse 30. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Now I'm going to read it to you, but I'm going to stop in a couple of places. And I'm just going to give you a little heads up. In this song is the entire history of the nation of Israel and the world. God here in Deuteronomy 32 lays out his plan for the mankind and for Israel and what he's going to do at the very, very end. And you're going to see by the time we get to the end of chapter 32 that the song that they're singing at the end of the tribulation period is going to be this song right here. Listen to what it says. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father too who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations, look closely, the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. Is he talking about Israel here or the nations? He's talking about the nations because we're going to see in the very next verse that he's going to start talking about Israel. But here he says that when he divided the people, 
He determined the portions for all the nations according to the numbers of the sons of God. There's a lot right there, folks. I'm not going to have you turn there, but you can double check me. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul's talking to the Areopagus on Mars Hill, and he's trying to describe to them this unknown God that they were worshiping. He said, the God that made the heaven and earth doesn't live in temples built by human hands, nor is he served by human hands if he needed anything. But from one man, he made every nation of men, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. He did this so that they would reach out for him and seek him. Folks, let me just tell you, when did God divide the people? At Babel, at the Tower of Babel, he scattered them. And the scripture says he did it according to where he wanted them all to be. And he did it according to the number of the sons of God. Does anybody catch that? It's the angels. He did it according to how many angels there were as well. There's a whole lot there. We're not going to take the time to go down that road and chase it. But there are a lot of angels and possibly one angel per every human being. But look at what he says. He divided the nations. We see from Acts 17 that he did it so that they would find him and reach for him. But verse 9, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He chose for his people the nation of Israel. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with the fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun, another name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek. And then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that had, they had never known, to new gods that, they had, that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Who's that? That's us Gentiles, isn't it? He already said way, way back before they even really got into the promised land, here's what you're going to do, and here's what I'm going to do. And Paul brings that to light in Romans chapter 11, that he's not done with Israel, but for a time, he's saving us Gentiles just to make Israel jealous, but he's not done with Israel. And you'll keep reading and you'll see it. For as a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains, and I will heap disasters upon them, I will spend my arrows upon them, and they shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by Plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors, the sword shall bereave, and the indoors, terror for young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, Our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did this. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. 
If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. Did you catch that? When God says, everything in me wants to just wipe them off the earth myself and be done with them. But the only reason I'm not going to do that is because it would make me look bad that I didn't fulfill my promises to them. And how many times, and you're going to see it later on in our study, not tonight, but later on in our study of Revelation. How many times did God say, for what he's going to do in the last days, it's not for their sake, but for his sake. For his righteous name, he's going to be doing what he does in Israel. He even says in the book of Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Israel, are not destroyed. The only reason they still exist is because God made a promise to the fathers and he's going to fulfill it. And it would make him look very, very bad if he didn't fulfill his promises. And that's why Israel is not done. So don't believe the Christians today who say God's done with Israel because too many times in his word he says, I can't do that. I can't be done with Israel. I've been tempted to be done with Israel. I've even divorced them. But I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bring them back. Keep reading. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not our rock. Our enemies are by themselves, for their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison and their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine in recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the, the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and what? Cleanses his land. Now, does that remind anything of any, anybody of anything we read in Revelation? Did, did something just click with you? If not, go with me back to Revelation chapter 15. Sorry, chapter 11, and then we'll get to 15. In Revelation chapter 11, look at what they sang again in verse 17. They sang, We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Back in, you're going to see it later on when we get to Joel chapter 3. It's going to talk about the fact that he's going to gather all the nations that are left at the end of the tribulation period. And he's going to judge them according to how they treated Israel and because they divided his land. Folks, all this stuff is pointing to a time when Jesus is literally coming back to this earth. And that's why, again, we see he was and is. He doesn't say it is to come in that passage because in that passage you see, and you have begun to reign. 
Why say begun to reign if he's still to come? You see what I'm saying? That's why most likely it was added. But what I want you to understand is, is it's and this is my prayer tonight, that we, not just those of us who are doing this study, but this truth would start making its way to the church. That they would really understand that Jesus is coming back. And they say that, yeah, but they don't think he's coming back here to rule and reign on the earth. And folks, if he doesn't, there are so many promises and prophecies that he's made. If they don't come true, he is a liar. It's not symbolic. It's literal. The Song of the Lamb. Does anybody know what that is? I feel a little bad because we've already seen it in Revelation 5. Go to Revelation 5 and don't, don't feel too bad. I don't feel too bad. Revelation chapter 5, look at verses 8 through 14. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he, which is Jesus, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall what? By the way, when is this happening? Has this happened yet, this song? Jesus taking the scroll and opening the seals, has this happened yet? So it's still future, right? So when they sing, you and they will reign on the earth, it has to be a future thing still. Do you see it? Then I looked and around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. These two songs together are going to be what's sung by those who are killed during the tribulation period who wouldn't take the mark of the beast. And they're going to be singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And those two songs together pretty much say, God, you've said this all along. This was your plan all along. And this is what Israel did. And by your glory and by your grace, you did not wipe them out. And this is what you did for us as Gentiles as well. And you've ran some people from every nation by your blood. And you have begun to reign. And we're just going to worship you because it's time. It's time. It's time for you to set up your kingdom on the earth. Now, let me just say this to you and go with me real quick to these passages. We in the church have had this taught to us as well. This wasn't just to the nation of Israel or future in the book of Revelation. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 5 through 11. Very familiar passage, but now listen to it in this context. Have this mind, Philippians 2 verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count it quality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By the way, if at that time every knee is going to bow, why are there still people on the earth? Unless there's still an earth. Do you see what I'm saying? 
Every day is going to bow. People, things in heaven, on earth, things under the earth, wherever anybody ends up. But if we're all just going to go to be with God in heaven, there is no literal millennial kingdom, and we're just going to go all reign with him, and everybody is going to bow down and bow there. Why are there still people on the earth doing it? Because the Bible told us. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Back up one book. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth in the fullness of time at the end of all this God's plan that he's revealing to us and has revealed to us this mystery is that everything is going to be given to Jesus things in heaven and things on the earth because it's going to happen on the earth. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 12. Long time ago, and at many times, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, and today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes them his, his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Does that sound familiar? Like what we're seeing during Revelation? You'll roll them up, but, and, they, and they will be what? Changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The earth is going to go through a transformation in this process, but it's going to continue. It's going to continue. And to which of the angels, verse 13, has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Folks, I could go on and on. I mean, we see in the Bible that all things were created by him and what? For him. By the way, what did he create? Things in heaven, things on the earth, things under the earth. It's all been created for him. And the 
return of Christ is literal. He's going to gather his church first. We're going to go be with him and we're going to get, receive our rewards for our faithful labor. We're going to rule and reign with him. That's why we're the 24 elders on the throne around him. And then we're going to come back with him and we're going to rule and reign with him on the earth for a thousand years. But then listen closely. This is kind of cool. For years we've thought that one day at, in the new heaven and the new earth we go live to be with God in heaven. Haven't we kind of had that thought? One day we'll go be with God in heaven. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible actually says that Jesus comes back to this earth. It's reformed during the millennial kingdom. At the end of it, Satan's released for a period of time. He tempts the people that have been born during the, the, the millennial kingdom to fight against Jesus. He wipes them out, and then he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And I can't wait to get there, but I don't know. It might not be until 2018. But we're, when we get to Revelation 22, you're going to see that the dwelling of God is with men. We don't go to be with God. There's a new earth. And when it says a new heaven, it means new skies because there's no more sun and the moon. The light of God, will glory, His glory will light the earth. And He comes and lives with us on an earth. What happens to the rapture during the thousand-year reign? The people that have been raptured, we're going to come back and be with Him on the earth, ruling and reigning, given different responsibilities. That's why Jesus said, you've been faithful for little. Hang on for a second. That's why He says when you, you, you've been faithful for little, you'll be in charge of ten cities, you know, or so on. You, but what are you talking about? Those of us... No, no, Satan doesn't reign for a thousand years. He's in the pit for a thousand years. He's released just for a short time at the end of the thousand years. During that short period, during that short period of time, he just tempts some people to go fight against Jesus at Jerusalem. And the Bible says with his mouth, he just wipes them all out just with one breath. And it's over like that. All right. Now, for the sake of time, we've got to keep moving. Go with me to Revelation 16. Revelation chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Revelation 16, verses 1 through 16. Then I heard a voice, a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, and for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, the God, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the ways for the kings from the, kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who, stands, who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. 
Now, we're going to be spending our time next week on this section to go into it in a lot more detail. But just to kind of catch us up with the group from Tuesday night so we stay together, let me just kind of hit you real quick with when these bowls are, are poured out, the first one, their sores are just boils come on these people on the earth. And by the way, if you want to do an interesting study, just go back and take a look at the plagues that God did, used in Egypt and how he used them to get the attention of Egypt and Pharaoh and parallel them with what God does in Revelation. It's almost identical. It's, it's an amazing thing. There's sores and then the seas turn to blood. Remember, we've already seen earlier a third of the seas and a third of the fresh water. At this point, every bit of the oceans are all now blood. And if you remember from our reading it, it was the blood of a dead corpse. All right. You and I have blood flowing through us right now and it's moving a little better. Be really good because I'm on blood thinners. But the blood of a corpse is a little bit different, isn't it? It's just nasty and stinky and congealed. The Bible says that all of the oceans become like that. You're going to see why I believe the Bible teaches that all these bowls are poured out pretty much all at once. It says in the days of the seventh trumpet. So it'll take, take a period of days, but it's going to be so nasty and so horrible. Some of the things that we're going to look at have to happen at the same time. And I'll show you that in just a sec. It says all the fresh water turns to blood. The sun then scorches people, the fourth bowl. Now, I just got to real quickly just say, think about what's going on right in our day today, in a day and age we live in, in which the world is saying that, you know, there's all this global warming going on. And they're using it as their thing to bring the world together, the global warming. And they're going to try to enact all these laws across the globe to save the earth. Because what good would it do if other nations do it, but America doesn't? You know, so we've got to get everybody involved in this. And I think at this point, the church will be gone. Well, actually, I know at this point the church will be gone. And most likely, after we're gone, there'll be a period. I don't think it's going to be rapture and then the tribulation begins. There could be a period of years between the rapture and the starting of the tribulation period. The rapture doesn't start the tribulation period. The confirming of the covenant. There's a strong chance that with all of us troublemakers gone, the world will be able to come up with their laws, to enact their green laws so that there will be no more global warming. And what does God do? He scorches them with the sun. You think you got global warming? You can stop it with all your laws? Yeah, go right ahead. Watch what happens. Then it says the kingdom of the Antichrist is darkened. I'm going to show you something as we close tonight. I believe this is Babylon. When it says the kingdom of, of, of the Antichrist is darkened, I believe it's Babylon. And we're going to spend a lot of time in the next few weeks getting into that, when we, especially when we get to chapter 17 and chapter 18 and the destruction of Babylon. Because for years, people have tried to say, well, maybe Babylon's America or maybe Babylon's the Catholic Church. I'm going to show you without question scripturally from many passages in the Old Testament and the New that Babylon is Babylon. When chapter 17 comes, we're going to see how God destroys Babylon because of their religious idolatry, which, by the way, started where? Organized false religions started where? Babylon. And then chapter 18, the city of Babylon and its kingdom is going to be destroyed because of its materialism and commercial idolatry, which again started there. By the way, those kingdoms that God talked about, the, the prophecy of the, of the, of the, beat, of the, the image... Where did it start? Who was the head of gold? Babylon. Who took over for him in that same area? The Medo-Persians. Oh, by the way, for those of you that say, it can't be Babylon, because the Bible says in the Old Testament that Babylon will be destroyed, never to be inhabited again. And the Medo-Persians came and wiped them out. The Medo-Persians came and lived in the land. If you read in your Bibles, you'll see that while Daniel's there in, in, in Babylon, he's under Babylonian kings, but by the end of his life, he's under Medo-Persian kings. They didn't 
not inhabit it. There was a destruction that the Bible talked about when the Medo-Persians were coming, but there was many prophecies about a future one that hasn't happened yet. And when we look at them, you'll see they have to be done by God, and they have to be future. But that kingdom was right there. By the way, when the Greeks came in, same area. When the Romans came in, same area. And I believe the Bible shows us that the headquarters for the Antichrist kingdom, further evidence that we in America, inconsequential, or join with the rest of the world, we might be one of the ten nations. We might be one of the ten nations, one of the toes that have agreed to all go together. But the headquarters are going to be in Babylon. And let me just give you one little, just for your curiosity, say, give you a taste so you come back next week. Go to Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. And look at verses 5 through 11. Chapter 5, verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift up your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity. Again, we don't have to guess what the basket symbolizes. If it's symbolic, it tells you what it symbolizes. This is iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket, and he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes, and I saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings, and they, the, they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? By the way, the basket is the iniquity of all the land, and inside it is wickedness. He said to me, to the land of Shinar. Some of your Bibles say what? Babylonia. To build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. You see it? The headquarters for the iniquity of all the land and wickedness is at some time going to be moved to Babylon at the end. By the way, just for your little curiosity, every time you see angels, they're always men, except for this place right here. It's the only place in the Bible that angels are women. There's two women with wind in their wings. As we close, you remember the sixth trumpet is blown, I'm sorry, the sixth bowl is poured out, and the stage is set for the Battle of Armageddon. These demons, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and they gather all the nation, all the kings of the whole globe to come fight there at the Battle of Armageddon against Jesus. They're not coming against Israel. Israel's been hiding, remember, the last three and a half years. They're coming against Jesus because they know he's coming back. By the way, who knows he's coming back? The dragon, the Antichrist, the false prophet. They're gathering one last thing. Trying to, Satan's going to have all his angels involved in that battle. He's going to gather every human being that he can get to be in that battle. And they're going to try to fight against Jesus. And when we get to it, you're going to see how Jesus comes back, and I'll show you from Scripture, he's not coming back to the Mount of Olives right away. He's going to Basra, where the nation of Israel is going to be hiding, going to reveal himself to them there. They're going to look on him, look on him whom they pierced. He's going to atone for their sins. He's going to forgive them, and he's going to then lead his armies all the way through the Battle of Armageddon up to the Mount of Olives, and he's going to send it, and it's the middle of the kingdom is going to begin. Can't wait to show you all that stuff, but that's enough for tonight. Folks, he's coming back Amen. to this earth. And everything the Bible says is going to happen. We see the stage being set.
can't wait to show you more, especially when we get to Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the Gog and the Magog battle. And you may be surprised where I think the Bible puts that battle. A lot of people have put it in a time frame over the years that I disagree with. And I'm going to show you why from Scripture and from Revelation. I think the battle of Gog and Magog begins around the time of the midpoint of the tribulation, but doesn't fully come to an end until the end of the Battle of Armageddon. I'm going to show you that the Gog and Magog battle and the Battle of Armageddon are the same thing. I'm going to show you from Scripture that. And one of the ways that we can know it is the Bible says from the end of that battle, from that point on, Israel believes in the Lord. It says that in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It has to be at the end for that to occur. Like I said, the hardest part for me is not telling you everything that's in here. Before you get sick and can't handle anymore, go home. See you next week. Thanks for coming.